Um, let's pray together before we start today. God, I thank you so much that we can come together and learn from your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear from your word today, that you would teach us, that we could learn who you are, that we would trust in you, that we can grow in confidence in who you are. In your name, amen. So my parents grew up in Holland. They were kids during World War II. Um, Germany occupied Holland in World War II. So they have some memories. They don't remember a lot of details of that time, but they have some memories. They remember German forces invading. They remember what it was like to have very limited freedom. They remember um, they couldn't bike where they wanted to. My aunt would get hauled over by the officers and, and kind of ask where she's going, what she's doing, um, how long she would be, all sorts of things. They couldn't own a radio. They weren't allowed to have any kind of input from the outside world. And also, their food sources were controlled. My grandpa actually made arrangements with neighbors to butcher their animals. He'd get a share of their, their meat and they'd get some and they'd secretly do this because they actually weren't allowed to do this at all. Um, the German forces controlled this. But he needed to do this because my grandma had nine kids at that time, three of which were born during the war. Um, it was very stressful. My, my um, grandpa would have to to run and hide oftentimes in the middle of the night when German soldiers would come to the door looking for him. They wanted um, labor for their workforces. And also my, my mom and dad's families would hide people occasionally. They were a stop um, for the Dutch resistance. They would, they would occasionally get people in until they found them a permanent home. So anytime that German soldiers were knocking on their door, it was stressful and scary and horrifying. And so the Dutch people were completely oppressed by the German officers there at that time and living in a scary, fearful situation, and they needed to be rescued. They had Allied forces working on this, but at this time, they needed rescue. Last week, where we saw Israel, they were in a place where they thought they were free. They had left Egypt. They had been receiving instructions on how to remember how God had saved them. So thinking they're free, this week we come to them finding out uh, it's not quite, they're not quite free yet. Pharaoh comes after them, and we see Israel in a hopeless position, needing to be rescued. We see them um, trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army in need of rescue. So God needs to deal with their enemy once and for all so that they will be truly free. So let's journey through our passage this morning. And we'll kind of visit three things. God is in control, God conquers completely, and God gains glory. So let's look at Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to chapter 14, verse 5. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. 
and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So the Israelites leave Succoth, they camp at the edge of the desert, but then the Lord tells them they're going to turn back. So they take this weird, twisted route, and to someone watching that, they would think the Israelites did not know what they're doing. But we have a behind-the-scenes look, and we know that God has a plan for this. He has a plan for this weird, twisted route. First of all, he's not leading them on the road through the Philistine country because he knows that what awaits them, they can't handle that. Their faith is not there yet. So there are, there's archaeological evidence that shows proof of heavy military outposts and depots along that route. So it, by human standards, for them to travel that direct route from, from the Medi- along the Mediterranean coast to Canaan would have been like a suicidal mission from, human, from a human viewpoint. But God knew that they did not have the faith at this point to just go along that route. They needed something more. So he doesn't take them that way. They'll run back to Egypt. They'll think that slavery is better than freedom if they go that route. They don't know that he can fight their battles yet. So we also see that God has a plan for this awkward route that will lure Pharaoh out and God will gain glory through this route. We see God is in control. We see also in verses 5 to 9 of chapter 14 that this, in this section, we, it tells of how Pharaoh and his officials have a change of heart. Now we know God's behind this change of heart too. He's in control. This is not beyond God's control. And Pharaoh, when he realizes that the Israelites are gone, whether that be because he thought they were going for three days or whether that be he thought he had let them go forever, he realizes they're gone and this is a problem for him. So he gets his best chariots ready and all the other chariots and he goes after the Israelites and overtakes them as they're camped by the sea. And so they're hemmed in and things do not look good for them. When um, a few years back, I think it was 20, 20, uh, 2015, my family and I put all our things into storage and we got into an RV and we traveled through North America. Um, sometimes we would have to stay at, in a parking lot. If we were arriving somewhere late at night or staying somewhere really um, in an awkward time and couldn't have an RV Um, site for the night, we'd stay in a parking lot. One night, we were visiting Washington, D.C. We had a late night in Washington, D.C., and we had gotten permission from a grocery store 
to stay in their parking lot. So we got to the RV late at night, hopped off the subway, got in our RV, got ready for bed, went, into, went to sleep, and about 3.30 or 4 in the morning, I heard loud bass thumping as a car pulled up behind our RV. I had these stories in my mind of people who had been like shot while staying in a parking lot, like this horrible images, and I thought, oh my goodness, there's someone coming to get us. So I realized that this car then stopped, and I'm listening as they turn the ignition off, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm rationalizing this, they wouldn't pull up behind me with loud bass if they were going to rob us. Like, this is going to be okay. But still, it was very scary. I waited and listened and trying to wake my husband up, but he's such a heavy sleeper. Then I'm like thinking, okay, the keys are here. I can start the car. We'll, we'll quickly drive the RV out of this parking lot. Turns out, this was just a supermarket employee coming to work really early. <laughs> I really didn't need to be frightened at all. But I was scared. And you don't really realize how vulnerable you are and how much of an illusion security is until you're sleeping in a parking lot across the continent in an RV. Like, you are not secure. So, Israel, though, is facing something far more terrifying than being in an RV with a car with their loud bass pulling up behind them. They're actually, they're not warriors. They're not equipped for battle here. They're facing the military giants of that time. Pharaoh's got his chariots. Chariots are the most technolo technologically advanced military device of that time. They signify that. They t signify this um, just mighty, warrior instrument of battle. Archers can ride on chariots and fire their arrows from an advantageous position. So this is like a status, of, a, a status symbol for Egypt. This is their superiority. It's like a military Lamborghini. So humanly speaking, Israel can't compete with this. This is like going to battle with a dollar store rubber sword against, like, actual weaponry. Humanly speaking, they can't fight this battle. Except we know that God is with them. And God is in control. And they should know this, but they really don't. Not yet. And how do they respond? Do they respond knowing that God is in control? In chapter 4, verse 10 to 12, this is how they respond. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So they questioned God's motives. They're so terrified they don't think God is good. They think that he brought them there to die, not to free them. And was this even what they actually said when Moses came to them initially with God's plan to free them? Let's look at Exodus 4, 29 to 31. <clears throat> Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. 
And Aaron told them everything that the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So initially, they were for this plan. They believed it. They wanted to be free. But now they're telling a totally different story when their faith is put to the test. It's even though, at this point, they have seen Yahweh in action, defeating the gods of Egypt with the plagues, their default is to grumble. They do not have a valiant, brave heart moment where they are like, We're, our lives for freedom, right? There's none of that. The oppression they faced under slavery looks better to them than this. So do, do we do this? Do we question God's motives when things look bad? Do we want to beeline back to old sources of comfort instead of going to God himself? Or do we know enough about God to know that he's in control? We also see Moses' response. In chapter 14, verse 13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. It seems that Moses has changed a lot. Because a few chapters back, Moses would have been grumbling too. His experience from the burning bush until now has shown him that God will do what he says he will do. God is in control. He's been transformed by seeing Yahweh's mighty hand. His response to this impossible situation is confidence in a God that does the impossible. He knows enough to trust God is in control. So God is in control. Even if the situation looks bad, even if it looks impossible, God is in control. Number two, God conquers completely. Chapter 14, verses 15 to 30 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. So in this final scene, Yahweh reprimands the people uh, through Moses, and he says, why are you calling out to me? Move along. I would have been like, where am I supposed to go? There's the sea on one side and Israel on the other. But that's what God says. This isn't a problem for me. Move along. The angel of God, the pillar of cloud, moves between Egypt and Israel. God moves to protect his people. 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea, 
During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. God does the impossible to save his people from the enemy. This amazing miracle, he holds back the sea with a strong east wind and there's a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians are, what? They follow them through, but then they're thrown into confusion and their wheels are jammed. Their mighty strong chariot wheels are jammed. It's like, have you been to Superstore and you put your coin in and you get that cart and, you know, it's... It's not the best, but you think, I don't want to get my coin back out and get another cart. So you take it, right? But it doesn't go in the direction you want it to. So Israelites' Lamborghini chariots are now basically superstore carts. <laughs> God has shown them. And they know who's doing this. They know it's God. They're like, we should get out of here. Suddenly, their military technology, their strength and glory and status are no match for God Pharaoh's might is no match for Yahweh's might. Egyptians that had tried to drown all of Israel's infant males are now drowned in the Red Sea. The entire army of Pharaoh, not one of them survived. God conquers completely. Israel doesn't fight this battle. They just watch. They just see. They don't fight. God conquers God takes on their Lamborghini chariots. He takes them on and he conquers completely. We tend to come to a passage like this and think that we have circumstances in our lives and we want God to move in them. Maybe a difficult job or physical illness or difficult relationships. And I want to say this is our God and he does amazing things and we can come to him and ask. But this isn't really what this passage is about. It's about a bigger enemy God conquering Pharaoh, God saving his people. And we have a bigger enemy than Pharaoh or World War II soldiers. Each of us is born into this world as a slave of sin under the control of sinful desires. I'm going to read from Tim Shehalis and Josh Byer's book, Visual Theology. Some live with the controlling fear of what others think, caring more about earning the approval of men than the approval of God. Some live under the control of addictive substances. Some become trapped in enduring patterns of sin and selfish desires. And the Bible is clear that this world lies under the sway of our enemy, the devil, as well. Even when we are not bowing the knee to our own sinful desires, we may be bowing the knee to his. There are a million ways in which we are not free, especially in our own desires and decisions. Why? Because apart from Christ, we always seek what we want, not what God wants. We are all born into this world in bondage to sin. 
We are born slaves to sin. And Romans 6:23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But it goes on to say that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Titus 3, verse 3 to 7 says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Jesus conquered completely. He paid for our sin completely. We went from enslaved to heirs, from enemies to children. He fought the greatest battle and has made us free, and this is good news. Sometimes, though, even after we've been freed, we still kind of get stuck thinking we're not. I know for myself that I need to hear this. I need to be encouraged by this. Because for a long time, I thought I had to do things to gain God's approval. And I lived under a constant burden of knowing that I didn't measure up. My family wasn't perfect. My marriage wasn't perfect. My life wasn't perfect. And I felt like I needed to shoehorn it into a box of perfection in order to be used by God and approved by Him. But when you realize And when I realize my sin is paid for completely, Christ has done that. I don't need to do that. That's mercy. He has given me mercy. I don't need to do anything extra to gain God's approval. When I realized that, that burden was lifted, and I didn't need to shoehorn myself into a perfect mold. God would do that transforming. He's freed me from that, and I don't need to worry about that. That realization freed me to serve God. And it freed me to love other people and not expect them to be shoehorned into this perfect mold. So God has conquered the enemy completely and we're free. Number three, God gains glory. Why did he do all this? For his glory. Chapters 14 and 15, we'll read verse 31 from 14 and to verse 2 from 15. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses and his, in, in Moses his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver has, he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. A repeated theme in Exodus is that God wants people to know who he is. He wants his people to know him. And he is revealing himself to his people over and over. And now it seems that they get it. They get it enough to put their trust in him. So they've seen this act of Yahweh They've seen him defeat their enemy once and for all. They've seen him completely 
conquer Pharaoh, and they can put their trust in him. Not completely after he destroyed the gods of Egypt in the plagues, right? And not even when he saved them from Passover. It's at this point, when they see him completely conquer their enemy, that they are moved to this place of trust. And so God gains glory in that because he's known. They know him. So sometimes growing up in the church or maybe being new, we are around the word glory or maybe new to the word glory, and we might need to revisit this to kind of understand what it is. I find a very helpful concept is kind of John Piper's concept of a telescope. So John Piper's talking about glorifying God, and I feel it's really helpful when we think about God's glory as well. He says, to make something unimaginably great look like what it really is. With the Hubble Space Telescope, pinprick galaxies in the sky are revealed for the billion star giants that they are. So we can see through this act of judgment on Pharaoh, and salvation for the Israelites, who God really is. God gets the glory. He saves Israel from the enemy. He's revealed for who he is. Yahweh, mightier than the mightiest Pharaoh, more glorious than Egypt's glorious chariots, trustworthy to lead his people, strong enough to be their salvation. Egypt will know, nations will know, The Israelites know enough to trust. They know no one is like him. Now their misplaced, terrifying fear that they had in Pharaoh is replaced with reverent fear in Yahweh. The Israelites' response is singing and dancing. Yahweh is highly exalted. He is my strength and my defense My God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. God gains glory. The people understand enough of him and who he is to trust him. They respond to this with praise. He gains glory. So at the beginning of the lesson, I told you about my parents in World War II. And I told you they didn't remember too many details. But there's one detail that they really remember well. In May 1945, Dutch, well, mainly um, British and Canadian soldiers, came and liberated Holland. They finally had their freedom. And my parents remember this. My dad told me about the celebrations that took place in the streets. Um, People took out their flags and hung them everywhere. They were given chocolate bars by the Canadian soldiers, and food was handed out by British and Canadian soldiers. But the people were celebrating their freedom. And the country actually still celebrates this with huge celebrations every single year on May 5th. And every year they send Canada thousands of tulip bulbs to thank them for their participation in World War II. So we read the story of the Red Sea and see an amazing account of freedom and salvation. We see an account of the miraculous. We see that God frees his people. We see that God is in control. He conquers the enemy completely. He has done this for us, so to God be the glory. Let us rejoice that we are free. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your work through Christ, that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we are free, that we are free to worship you and to serve you. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to show us more of your glory, that we might glorify you. In your name, amen.